Chapter 4 of A Man Who Missed It by W. H. H. Murray. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 4 It was nigh on to a month before the man who missed it again alluded to his experiences. Indeed, he had not been physically well. The labors, and above all the repeated misfortunes of his life, had, beyond doubt, materially affected his vital powers. And it was evident that, previous to his finding the trapper's cabin, he had passed through a period of perhaps aimless wandering, during which, without positive design, he had passed beyond the region of the settlements which fringed the wilderness, and penetrated into its depths utterly unprovided for such a serious journey. Exposure by day and night to the storms that beat upon him, and the winds whose chilling blast pierced his thin and scanty garments, in connection with lack of sleep and lack of food, had served to lessen still more the little strength which the adverse struggle of his life had left him. Indeed, he might well be likened to some ship which, for half a century, had been put to the hardest service, and which had not only borne for years the buffeting of many tempests, but had been weakened through all its structure by the insidious influence of a climate that had sapped the strength of its timbers, and, while it had indeed been blown by the gale which threatened its destruction to a tranquil harbor, it had nevertheless entered in such a condition that those who knew it best felt doubtful that it would ever again leave the harbor, between whose headlands it had found the sorely needed refuge. The day following the conversation, which we have narrated in the preceding chapters, found the trapper's guest not only indisposed to talk, but even indisposed to move. He rose from his slumber with the looks of a man who rises unrefreshed. He ate but little at breakfast, and after the meal was finished, he took his seat in the easy chair at the one end of the great hearthstone, as if his weakness, long resisted by effort of his will, had overpowered him at length, and compelled him to quiet. He even dozed as he sat in the chair, sleeping for a few moments, and then rousing himself with a sudden start. At last, he said, turning toward the trapper in an apologetic and deprecating tone, "'I trust, John Norton,' "'You will excuse my inattention to the duties "'and what might be the pleasures of the day. "'But I am very tired. "'I have not slept much lately, "'and that probably accounts for the feeling which possesses me. "'I feel as if I would like to sleep forever "'if it wasn't for Lucky here. "'Lucky?' said he, speaking to his dog. "'If it wasn't for you, Lucky, "'I would like to go to sleep, and sleep forever.' The dog, whom the night's sleep had fully refreshed, rubbed his head against the knee of his master, and then, putting his paws on his lap, stretched his mouth to his master's cheek and caressed it with his tongue. The man put both arms around the neck of his dog, laid his face against his shoulder, and when he lifted his head, the trapper noticed that tears had fallen into the shaggy coat. "'I tell you what I think you'd better do, friend,' said the trapper." "'You had better go to sleep. "'You look to me like a man that has been on a long trail, "'which has led principally uphill, "'and the tramp has been a little too much for you, "'and Nader is sort of getting out. "'Yes, what you want is sleep, "'and my advice to you is just take to the skins again "'and sleep it out if it takes a week. "'You won't be disturbed, for the pups and me be quiet, folks, "'and the neighbors ain't plenty.' "'Yes, you'd better turn in and sleep it out. "'That's my advice.' "'May I sleep as long as I want to?' 
said the man, and he spoke as a boy speaks when asking the greatest of favors. May I sleep as long as I want to, he repeated, looking the old trapper in the face and rising feebly from his chair. Certain, certain, answered the trapper. There's four good months afore the trout be moving in the rapids, or the biggins will strike a hook in the lake. Yes, I've certainly got time enough. That is, if you don't lose any time in getting at it. So just bunk down in the skins with your dog, and me and the pups will run the shanty while you sort of enjoy yourself. The man needed no second bidding. He made him a bed of skins at one end of the cabin, and throwing himself upon them, in less than a minute his senses were locked in profound repose. The dog went to the old trapper, looked into his face, wagged his tail happily, gave a gleeful jump and twist of his body, and then, trotting to the couch of skins, he curled himself up beside his master and went to sleep himself. But if his master moved even to the least degree, the dog's eyes came open with a snap. He would lift himself on his forward legs and look attentively into his master's face for a moment, and then curl down and close his eyes again. "'That's a knowing dog,' said the trapper, "'if his bristles be stiff. It was a most unrational cross, for certain, and no sensible hunter would risk it. For the dog of blood is the only one to depend on when the ground be dry, the chase long, and the meat scarce. Yes, the cross was certainly unreasonable, but the dog is a good'un, if he does look like thunder.' The object of these critical and humorous remarks knew beyond doubt that he was alluded to, for as the old trapper closed, he opened one eye and fastened the bright orb on the old trapper's face, while the other remained shut, and he gave the floor two or three inquisitive thumps with his tail. A more quizzical look was certainly never seen on a dog's face, nor taken in connection with the look, a more humorous wag of the tail. The trapper stood and gazed steadily for several seconds at the guest's queer companion, he even closed one eye himself as if he could return the humor he received, and then his great face began to wrinkle, and the smile, beginning at the corners of his mouth, comb up the deepening lines as a boy, laughing as he goes, climbs the rounds of a ladder, until it found a lodgment in his eyes, whence it remained looking quizzically and gleefully out. The longer he looked at the dog, the more the smile deepened, until it burst into a laugh. His mouth opened to its widest stretch, and placing a hand on either knee, he indulged his silent mirth to the utmost. A strange spectacle, truly, to see a man and a dog thus exchanging humor. But that the animal enjoyed the passage of fun was evident, for the orb which was fastened on the trapper's face grew brighter and brighter as the pantomime proceeded, and the stumpy tail wagged its sympathetic appreciation with increasing hardiness. It was evident that the trapper doubted his ability to longer restrain his mirth, and fearful lest he should disturb his guest, who was still asleep, he slid out of the door, saying in mirthful gasps, "'The cross is certainly unreasonable, but the dog is a good'un,' and once outside the door indulged his pent-up feelings to the fullest extent." Thus several weeks passed, and the exhausted frame of his guest, ministered unto by nourishing food and perhaps by what was better, abundant sleep, recovered to a great degree its strength, and with the improvement to his physical health, was observable also an equal improvement in the tone of his feelings and the hopefulness of his spirit. He had in the meantime talked with the trapper on many themes, 
and showed himself in his conversations to be a scholar of profound attainments. But not once had he ever alluded to his past life, and the trapper forbore, from a sense of native delicacy, to question him concerning himself. He had not only shown himself a good talker, but a good listener also. And many were the tales connected alike with war and peace with which the trapper had entertained him in the long evenings as they sat by the fire together. It is doubtful if two men were ever before brought together who could give each unto the other such instruction and entertainment, for the worlds in which they had lived and whose lessons they had learned were entirely unlike, and the knowledge and experience of each were equally novel and interesting to the other. Thus the two men, both ripened with years and both wise in their way, brought strangely together, became intimate companions. Their mutual respect deepened into friendship as they sat in the long evenings exchanging their opinions and their experiences. And by Christmas time it would not be too much to say that each seemed to the other like a lifelong acquaintance, and not as men who one short month before saw each other's face for the first time. It was Christmas Eve. The trapper and his guest were sitting in front of the great roaring fire. The hounds were on the hearth, and the stranger's dog by his knee. The trapper had noticed that his guest had been in an unusual mood during the day. Now he had been restless, walking about the cabin, going to the narrow window, looking out as if he expected to see someone approach, and then he would seat himself in his chair, and, resting his chin on his hand, gazed fixedly upon the floor, lost in profound abstraction. But as the day declined and evening came on, a more gentle and solemn mood took possession of his spirit, causing the prevalent expression of his countenance to be one of sadness. The old trapper had refrained from noticing the peculiar disquietude of his guest, and even now continued to forego the customary conversation lest he should disturb the musings of his friend. Thus the two men sat on Christmas Eve in front of a great fire, silently gazing into it. "'It's thirty years ago tonight,' the stranger said, speaking at last. And as he said it, as if speaking more to himself than his companion, "'It's thirty years ago tonight since she passed away.' And then he said, turning to the trapper and repeating the same words, changing the tone of his voice to one of address, it is thirty years ago tonight, John Norton, since an event occurred which has influenced my life up to this day. Did you ever see one that you love die, John Norton? asked the man, looking the trapper steadily in the face. I have fought on many fields, said the old man, and I have been in many a scrimmage where men fell round me like autumn leaves. I have seen the general and the private struck down, and I've seen the young man and the old lie side by side, and many a comrade have I buried after the fight was over, or the scrimmage ended. Yes, I have seen many that I love die. I know you have been in many battles, John Norton, replied the man, and I can well imagine that you have lost many friends, but did you ever lose one who was more than a friend, one whom you loved with all the power of your being, and whom, in losing, you lost all that made life valuable? I have seen many die, both young and old, said the trapper evasively, and there be graves I shall never forget. But they died in the Lord's appointment, and the Lord gave me strength to bear like a man the loneliness that their going made. 
How did he strengthen you to bear your loneliness, John Norton? queried the man. The ways of the Lord be many, answered the trapper. And he comes and goes on trails that man cannot see. He is as the wind among the trees. You feel the motion, but you see not the power. The lad used to say that thoughts come at his bidden, and I concede that the lad in his simpleness was wiser than many that be knowing. For more than once, when standing above graves, I've had thoughts come that strengthened my heart. What thought, old man, has strengthened you most? interrogated his companion. The thought of meeting when the earth is ended, was the response. Do you think, said the man, that beyond the grave we shall meet the friends gone on before? I certainly concede we shall, said the trapper. Do you think, persisted the man, and his eyes shone brightly, and he made a gesture like the gesture of appeal to the trapper. Do you think, the spirits of the departed can revisit the earth and are conscious of what we do and say and think? It may be that they can, answered the old man. I know they can, exclaimed his companion. I know they can. I know a spirit can return either comfort or condemn the living. For a moment the old trapper made no reply. He looked with a steady gaze into the glowing eyes of his companion as if inwardly debating whether the misfortunes of his life had not to a certain extent unsettled his intellect, and after a moment's inspection he asked in a respectful tone, How do you know, friend, that a spirit can return? Because, said the man, once each year, for thirty years, has the evidence been given me. Thirty times since she passed from this earth has her bright spirit returned and made me aware of her presence. Thirty times on the same night, and at the same hour, and in the same manner, she has made me aware that the ties which bound us together are not broken, and the love that she gave me has not cooled. For several minutes nothing further was said. The trapper rose and placed a couple of fresh logs on the fire, and reseated himself. He had scarcely done so before his guest moved his own seat as to bring himself face to face with the trapper, and said, Old man, for a month I have eaten at your board and slept in your cabin. I have listened to your words and observed your manner of life. I know you are wise with the wisdom that years give, and that you are good with the goodness that only comes to one who has lived honestly in the world." I have found in you what for years I have looked for in vain, an honest man. I told you the first evening that we met a portion of my life. I will resume the narration. Listen. You know what I lost in my infancy and childhood, that as a child I was without father or mother or name or country or home. I will now tell you what I missed in my youth. So saying, the man again resumed the story of his life. In the house of my benefactor, as I told you, I found a home, for in it was love, the love of husband and wife, the love of parent, and the love of a child. It was a home also, of finest mood and temper. Kindness and courtesy were the habit of the household. In the ten years that I lived in that house, I never heard an unkind word or saw an exhibition of bad temper. A house with evil tempers in it, John Norton, can never be a home. 
"'You have a judgmental way of looking at most things, friend,' said the trapper. "'I lived in a squatter's cabin down in the Mohawk, nigh on to forty year ago, in the most a month, and the woman that kept the shanty made it lively for us, I can tell you. You see, she had one of them cross-grained tempers that shouldn't stand the least bit of strain, and being naturally tough in its fiber, it made a good deal of noise when it snapped.' Between the redskins and the whites, I've heard a good deal of rapid talking off and on in my life. But that woman had natural gifts with her tongue for certain, and when she fairly got at it, there wasn't room enough in the shanty to hold born one at a time. I camped out nights for the most part, for she used to get wound up days, and a mighty little thing in the evening would touch her off. And when she got a going, the Lord of mercy himself couldn't stop her. "'and yet she was pleasant and chirpy enough "'if you kept on the right side of her, "'but you couldn't always just tell where the right side was. "'And the man had to be mighty lively at dodging "'to keep on reasonable terms with her. "'You see, I went down to get a touch of the settlements "'and become sort of civilized, "'for I adhered a good deal of the pleasant ways "'they had in the settlements. "'But a month was enough.' and I came back to my cabin in the woods as contented as a bee in his hive. But the house in which I lived was the house of peace, John Norton, continued the man, and such peace as only springs from affection. My benefactor was the noblest of men, and his wife was the gentlest of women, and the daughter. John Norton, do you think that angels are ever born on the earth? It may be, said the trapper. "'Yes, it may be occasionally one, off and on, "'but they don't come often enough to trouble a man with counting them "'if he is reasonably quick of figures. "'But it may be you found one, friend, in the house where you lived.' "'I did, I did!' exclaimed the man. "'If ever an angel was born on the earth, "'the daughter of my benefactor was one. "'A body she was beautiful beyond the beauty of most women.' A beauty finer than the beauty of form, however perfect, or for feature, however regular. For hers was the beauty of mind and of spirit, a mind that ruled the face in its expression, and a spirit that categorized the countenance with its own gentleness. Her eyes were blue as the sky you have seen at noonday, John Norton, of that peculiar blue which darkens in feeling when the life within grows intense and all shades of expression could come to them save of anger. I knew not but that they were capable of that. I only know I never saw it in them. Perhaps she again are no cause, said the trapper. Perhaps not, said the man. No, none of us gave her any cause to be angry, for we loved her too well for that. Oh, if I could make you see her, old man. Her hair was bright as the sunshine, and almost of the same tint, as if it had the power not merely to attract the rays, but to hold them amid its wavy masses. I have seen such hair in the pictures that the old masters painted of the heavenly ones, but never in womankind, since we laid the golden hair from sight, and smothered its sunshine in the grave. Her skin was white as a lily, but through the whiteness the eye could see a hint of pink which now and then came to the surface in warmest hue, when life within was stirred. 
in which one might say and feel too, John Norton, that he saw the sunrise of a soul warm and pure as the morning. But why attempt description? The years vanish as I speak, and I see her as she was on the evening she died. He paused a moment. His face was white. The muscles at the corner of his mouth twitched, and he clutched the arms of the chair in which he was sitting with his hands. He was evidently contending with whatever strength he had against the emotion which rolled in waves of feeling over him, as lifted and moved onward by the impulsive memories of the past. In a few moments he continued, with his hands still clutched on the arms of the chair. It was evening, the evening on which she and I were to be married. The evening on which we were to be married, John Norton, do you understand? He looked at the trapper with eyes already moistened for tears. "'I understand you,' said the trapper, and he bowed his head unconsciously to his guest, but with a motion of profoundest sympathy. "'We were to be married,' repeated the man. "'The priest had come. The friends were present. The father on my right. The mother on the left. The minister in front.' The opening words had already been said when I felt a shiver run through her frame. Startled, I turned. She gasped. She flung her hands on high. She gave one piercing scream, and down at the altar's front my bride fell dead. Good God, said the trapper. For a full minute not a word was said. The trapper, with startled look and pitying eyes, gazed fixedly at his guest. The man gazes fixedly into the face of the trapper. "'What happened then?' said the trapper, when the silence had become oppressive. "'I lifted her in my arms,' said the man. "'I bore her to her chamber, the chamber that was to have been ours, John Norton, laid the dead and beautiful body on the bed, drove the friends and parents from the room, locked the door, and watched the night out with my bride.' Oh, the talk that we two had that night, John Norton. The pledges we gave and the vows that we exchanged, none but the God of the quick and the dead ever knew. I certainly ask your forgiveness, said the trapper, if my words hurt your feelings, but I can't conceit, although ye who mean to be truthful, I don't doubt. Tell it to me face to face that the dead ever talked to the living. John Norton, exclaimed the man, and he flung his hands on high with imperative gesture. I swear by the heavens above, where her spirit has its home, that my bride talked to me that night, and she pledged me a solemn pledge, that once each year, while I stayed on the earth, if I kept my pledge to her, that she would come, if permitted of God, and make her presence known by signs and movements that I could not mistake and the vow that she made me in death she has kept hitherto, and will keep here and now, for this is the night, and... He would have said more, but the hounds on the hearth moved uneasily, woke from their sleep, sat suddenly up on their haunches, and with inquisitive muzzles scented the air. While Lucky, the dog, moved with some strange feeling of love and fear, crept half up to his master's lap, Either the movements of the hounds or some cause to the trapper undiscoverable had checked the man in his sentence, which he finished in a voice scarcely above a whisper. This is the hour. 
With the words, the man rose suddenly from his chair and stood erect in the attitude of listening. "'Have you ears, old man?' ejaculated he. "'Then listen, for the steps of my bride are coming to your door.' What he would have said further cannot be known. For the two hounds that had continued uneasily lifted their muzzles into the air and gave in concert a low, mournful, and prolonged cry while Lucky sank suddenly to the floor, his bright eyes moving from his master's face to the door and back from the door to his master's face. Nor was the old trapper unmoved, like all whose lives had been lived in the woods. The superstitious element was strongly developed in him. A child of nature as he was, the marvelous and the mystical found in him, if not a believer, by no means an unsympathetic listener. The unnatural motions of the hounds whose singular conduct the trapper had not been slow to notice, the impressive manner of his guest, and that stronger but more subtle and indescribable influence which one person, when powerfully moved, can exert upon another, conspired to produce in him an effect which in other circumstances would have been impossible. Be this as it may, he too had risen from his chair with his guest, and thus, amid the profoundest silence, the two men stood in the attitude of listening. Was it the wind? Was it more than a wind? Certainly something moved in the air outside and overhead of the cabin. Moved as wind might move, and yet it was more of a motion than a sound, a motion that seemed to come on and come down as from a height, come down and alight. And then, what was that? Was it a footstep in the snow? A fox, perhaps, rushing swiftly by through the drifts. A rabbit, bounding lightly round the corner of the cabin. And yet, the motion that made the sound, if sound there was, was slower than the quick step of a fox and heavier than the light motion of a hare. Hark, said the man, and he said it in a whisper, while his face flamed. She is coming. Was it imagination? Was it fancy? Was it a trick played on the reason by excited nerves? Was it reality? Something was coming. What? For up the path made in the snow toward the hunter's cabin came a step, a light step, and yet a step that seemed to hurry as if running on swiftest errand, as if fulfilling some mission of need, came swiftly on, came to the threshold of the cabin door, and stopped. For an instant, silence and then a knock sounded plainly and distinctly on the panels. Whether the words came from him as the direct result of the tension which he was under, or whether they were the result of habit and spoken involuntarily, it would be vain to inquire, but no sooner had the rap sounded on the door than the old trapper lifted his head and, facing the entrance, said, "'Come in!' For a moment a hand fumbled with the latch, and then the door suddenly opened." and in the open doorway, plain to sight, stood a woman. The man flung his arms into the air, gave a moan, and fell as if dead to the floor. End of chapter 4